The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. The whole point of Christian books is to convey a powerful Christian message through literature. But readers won't get that message if they're turned off by the writing. And one of the things that turns off potential readers and turns them away is a heavy-handed preachiness or heavy-handedness in general. So how can you convey a Christian message without being preachy? Well, to help us answer that question, we have a special guest today who's the author of 14 books with two more under contract. He also writes for Focus on the Family, Clubhouse Magazine, Coaches Writers, and is a popular speaker at conferences around the country. Tim Shoemaker, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thomas, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much. So uh, real quick, before we get into talking about preachiness, I'm curious to hear your story. How did you go from unpublished writer to published author? Wow. Well, um, believe it or not, my line of work, I was um, I had a one-hour photo lab in studio. So you remember where all those went, right? Uh, <laughs> they disappeared. But I'd been writing on the side, and basically I loved telling stories to my kids and nieces and nephews. And so um, they would always say, oh, you got to write these stories down. And I had no interest in doing that at all. But one time I tried. And when I tried, I found out I absolutely loved it. And so then I started working on it uh, on the side and then uh, started getting some uh, short stories uh, published. Uh, and we kind of went on from there. But yeah, that's how it started, by just telling kids stories and uh, and then beginning to write it down. That is the old story. That's how a lot of authors got into writing back 100 years ago. <laughs> and what I love about the telling children stories that you're making up is that it is interactive, right? The children will f- vote on what happens. It's almost like a role-playing game uh, where it's interactive, where you're collectively telling the story and you're able to see in real time if you're boring them or not, right? Like, Absolutely. It was the eyes. You know, you watch those eyes and and I would love it when I see the eyes getting kind of wide, like, okay, maybe I'm pushing a little bit too far. <laughs> They're getting scared here and uh, I'd have to tone it down a bit. But that was just so much fun to me. Yeah, it's very, my toddler, it's very obvious when she's lost interest in a book because she straightens her whole body and just kind of slides off my lap. <laughs> it's like, nope, I'm done. She'll slide right off my lap and grab the next book. And so it's been a great education for me as to what works and what doesn't work in children's books. Uh, telling stories helps, I think, more with, with novels and more with um, telling stories uh, to adults. Because if you can keep a child's attention, you've learned a lot of fundamentals for keeping a, uh, an adult's attention. In many ways, it's harder to keep the attention of a child. You're absolutely right, but that is a, a great training ground. Um, my wife and I uh, started, well, right after we got married, we started working with high school uh, students on a volunteer basis, on a weekly basis, and uh, we continue to, to this day, but it helps, you know, right away if you've got them or you don't. And so when you're speaking to a group like that, you need to do things a little bit different. And so I try to employ uh, some of those same things when I'm writing. So you started writing down these stories that you were telling uh, these children. Uh, then what happened after that? Well, um, I continued to work in the business, and I always held, hoped that the business would do so good I could hire somebody uh, to do part of what I was doing so I could write more. Uh, but that didn't uh, that didn't really work that way. Uh, business got tougher and tougher until we got to the point where I realized uh, we have to close. 
we have to close that business. That was 2004. And uh, by that time, I think I had uh, three, four books, but they were nonfiction. And had they been published or they were just sitting in your shelf? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, they were published. Oh, I had several novels of unpublished, but uh, I had... uh, uh, it was strangely enough, I'd gone to a writer's conference, Thomas, and I was ready to pitch my fiction and I told him about it. And he was like, nah, we don't really do that. Uh, what else do you have? And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is what I came here for, <laughs> you know? And, uh, well, I, I mentioned what I was doing for our family devotion time. And uh, how I'd been writing those down when I finally found something that worked and I'd been writing those down that he was interested in. And that started a series of books, but it was always working towards that fiction was that elusive thing that I really, really wanted. And uh, so uh, it, it eventually came after we closed that business. I thought, this is it. This is God's nudge. This was the moment to go all in. So it wasn't the first book that you wrote. And it wasn't the second book that you wrote. How many books in to writing were you by the time you got a um, contract on a story? Novels. Uh, I think it was the third or the fourth one uh, that I wrote that actually got picked up. In fact, in the one series um, that I've got, um, the Code of Silence series, you know, I was getting, I had an agent. It had enough interest to get that. And, you know, we we're pitching this book around, uh, the, the first book in the series. Meantime, I'm starting to write the second book. I'd finished the second book and, uh, we had interest, but not a contract interest. And, uh, so finally I'd finished the second book and I'm going to a writer's conference and I thought, you know what? I'm going to pitch this one. And they grabbed it, but it was book two. And so I said, well, you know, incidentally, uh, you know, there's a book one. Would you like to see that? And they were like, no, we like the way this starts. <laughs> and I know I was like, you got to be kidding me. So it was the lost first book in the series. But the truth of it was, it was part of the training ground. And the writing had gotten just a little bit better. And that's what made the difference. There is a huge difference between uh, almost good enough and good enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and there's it takes a lot of work to make that little extra difference. Right? Like if you're learning how to swim, right, you can learn to get really fast pretty quickly. But the difference between say first place and second place in the Olympics, which is often just a hands worth, that is maybe an extra four hours of training a day to get that extra hands work, right? Like there, when you get to the, like the really high levels, you're doing a lot more work for what seems like very little benefit. And yet that extra hands worth of speed is all the difference between being at the top of the podium and being uh, next to that person. Thomas, you bring up a really good point because sometimes when I'm like coaching a writer and, you know, I see, oh, this paragraph is really good. Um, I like it. In fact, I think it's almost there. So it's it's the best paragraph in your whole <laughs> chapter, but I want you to work with that a little bit more because I think there's a little more. Uh, and so that's the thing is spending that extra time to get it a little bit better makes uh, all the difference. One of the things I do uh, when I'm when I'm editing and I'm and I'm, you know, just about done, I try to find three things on a page that I can make better. A word, a sentence, tighten, anything. 
in a space of a novel, that's a thousand little ways I've made it stronger by the time I'm done. So, um, yeah, that makes a big difference. All right. So I, I love this approach and kind of being a craftsman and constantly trying to improve, like, you know, making each book better than the last. And one of the things that's really challenging is working that Christian message into the story. You can't just tack, the, tack it on with some scotch tape at the end. How do you go about making your books Christian books? Well, I think here's the thing. Well, first of all, let me just, just a philosophy thing. Um, if we, go into this saying, I'm going to write a Christian book. I'm probably going to say you might have trouble right there. Um, I gave up the idea of writing a Christian book. What I'm doing is I'm going to write a great story with great characters. That's what I'm going to focus on. And I'm going to make one of those characters a Christian. And that's what I really need because people want to read a good story. They want to read about a character they can identify with. And if one of them's a Christian, now I can be true to that faith. And I'm not writing a Christian story so much as I'm writing a story about somebody who happens to be a Christian in a world of other people who are not necessarily Christian. And uh, that makes, I think, for a a great dynamic. And, and then I guess the other part, Thomas, is is looking out for those problem areas that we tend to have with Christian fiction. <laughs> That's right. And what are some of those problem areas? I, the big three that I go to uh, is predictability, plausibility, and the preachiness. So in that one you already mentioned, uh, but predictable, uh, you know, sometimes these stories that we read, they're just, they seem forced Maybe they seem unrealistic. Uh, they're just predictable. We kind of know where they're going. We don't get far in that story, and all of a sudden we're saying, oh, okay, this is a story about abortion, or, oh, this is about racial reconciliation, or this is about salvation. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but it tends to get agenda-driven. Uh, so predictability is, is a is is one thing. Plausibility, I think, is even bigger uh, in my mind. So uh, what, walk us through that. Why is that even a bigger problem? Well, you know, first of all, remember when, at least when I was growing up, Thomas, you might have had it. I had a couple of those um, uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, you know, books with all the crazy stories and, and facts. And the thing of it was, some of the stuff was just outlandish, but I believed it. The way it was written, I believed it. And there was a lesson there uh, that you could write about all kinds of things and it be believable if it's done right or it's done well. And, uh, you know, people have written about werewolves and uh, space travel and time travel and all kinds of different things. And it's completely believable if it's done well. And so with this, we have to make sure that our stories are believable. And there's so many different things that can take them out of that experience. Uh, maybe a reaction, an action, a lack of a reaction uh, by, by a person, dialogue that just doesn't feel right. Uh, anything that takes our reader out of that experience is going to be a plausibility thing. Like, could this person really do that? Uh, would they be able to do that? Um, we have to watch for those. It's like... Um, like if you went to Disney World or something, and you know the one thing you don't ever see there are signs uh, that say uh, 
uh, you know, reminders that you've got work and problems and bills waiting for you at home. Uh, no, they, they want you to stay in the Disney experience and forget all about that. And that's what we have to do with our book. We have to keep them there. And so everything's got to be, uh, you know, very believable. And sometimes that can be hard, right? I mean, truth can be stranger than fiction, the old cliche. There's a great essay about plausibility written by Mark Twain. Oh, really? It's The title is The Literary Offenses of James Fenmore Cooper. So James Fenmore Cooper is the guy who wrote The Last of the Mohicans, and Mark Twain thought that James Fenmore Cooper was a terrible writer because his stories were so implausible, and he breaks down in this savage critique. <laughs> it's like a, a one-star review of the entire literary work of like the other great American novelist <laughs> at the time, which only Mark Twain could get away with this. But what's interesting, a lot of the famous Twain quotes on writing are from this essay. And you, I really encourage uh, each of you listening to, to read this essay. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's a free article. The copyright is long expired, so you can find it online. It's not very long, and it's a really great breakdown of how to make your stories more plausible from arguably one of the greatest, greatest authors in the kind of American canon of, of writing, right? Mark Twain, he's maybe not the best, but if you were to put together a list of the top 50, he'd be in it. And if you were to put together a list of the top 10, he might still be uh-huh. in it. So he's a good person to listen to when it comes to how to make your writing better. I think this is the article um, where he says, use the right word, not at second cousin, right? The very famous quote uh, that's in there. It's a really great article and I encourage all of you to read it. That's a great tip. All right. So you talked about uh, being predictable or and you talked about being plausible. Now, preachy, what does it mean to be preachy? What do you mean by preachy? Oh, well, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that you've got an agenda. And if there's something you want to try to convey so hard, um, you're just trying to work it in there. Or it's this stereotypical thing. Hey, if I'm writing a Christian book, you know, I've got to have the plan of salvation, right? Um, uh, or I've got to have some, you know, word from a pastor in there or something. And, and I would say, no, no, you don't. Um, in fact, I'd be really, really careful about the plan of salvation in uh, a book. And I, I don't want to sound, you know, bad on this, but the problem is it's been done so poorly so often. And if a Christian's reading it, they skim. Once they hit the plan of salvation, oh, okay, here we go. And if a non-Christian's reading it, they're going to say, oh, it's a trap. No, oh, okay. It's a trap. Go. Yeah. And so, and so you can hardly win. It's just got to be written so well. And I've seen it. I've seen it done well, but I've seen it done poorly a lot more than that. So I tend to uh, avoid that. If somebody says, no, I've got to have the plan of salvation, then have a note from the author at the end of your book um, or steer them to your website and have it there. But um, to me, the key is bring them truth, and the truth is going to bring them close, closer to Christ. Yeah, I think there is room in the market for polemics, and there are times when polemics do really well. So like Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, the story is kind of wooden and the characters are kind of wooden. The Shack, The Harbinger, The Oracle, these are all New York Times runaway bestselling books that are not good stories, right? From a literature perspective, they're not good stories, but they are good sermons. They're good polemics. And I think that if that's what you're trying to write, you need to do that on purpose. And you need to make a case for something that no one has made a case for before. Like what all of these books have in common is that they were, when they were came out, 
fresh. No one had heard an argument of why God allowed September 11th to happen. But when the Harbinger came out and made a case for that, people were intrigued and they bought millions of copies of that book. Um, at least certain kinds of Christians did. Other kinds of Christians have never heard of that book, whereas everyone has heard of the shack. <laughs> uh, but, so there's some interesting uh, denominational reasons for that. But the reality is, for every successful polemic, there's maybe a dozen or two dozen successful uh, normal stories, maybe a hundred successful normal stories, because in general, fiction readers aren't wanting to read polemics. They're wanting to read an intriguing story with characters that they like and that they want to hang out with. And occasionally they'll read a nonfiction book kind of wrapped in a narrative, uh, but that's very uncommon. And it's really more of a way of writing a nonfiction book than it is a way of writing a true novel. Mm-hmm. That's good. So I don't know. I don't know what your your take is on the various famous polemics uh, of of literature going back. Um, there's also the um, another form of this, which I, I call the business parable. It's the um, you know the five minute manager type book where it's it's a very specific thing that's being taught through a very terrible story, and no one comes to the five minute manager or the who moved my cheese type book because like oh it's a book about a mouse in a cave in a maze it's such an exciting story right nobody reads who moved my cheese for that way but you know it happens to be a story that happens to be a way of presenting the material but again it's fresh what, what at least when it came out right when the after you sell 10 million copies and everyone rips off your ideas it ceases to be fresh a generation later but when it came out at the time it was like oh my goodness you know what would i do if i wasn't afraid that's an amazing thought and it changed people's lives and if you're going to do it do it on purpose don't put a little bit of polemic in your otherwise good novel because that's like putting ketchup on ice cream. You can have great dishes with ketchup and you can have great dishes with ice cream, but when you mix, it does not mix. That's a good, that's good, that's a good example. I like that. Right. That's the thing. Write and tell a good story. You know, you think about, think about when Jesus was, was, you know, uh, in the gospels, all the different stories. How often did you see him giving some kind of a plan of salvation? Uh, You know, he was just telling the truth. He was uh, clearing up misconceptions about God. He was clearing up misconceptions about Scripture. He was clearing up misconceptions about how we were to live, what really life was about, how it worked, where our priorities should be. Uh, he did all of that, um, and just by telling the truth. And so I think with our stories, we want to be about telling the truth. That, to me, is is the paramount uh, thing and if we're telling the truth, uh, we're heading in the right direction. And helping people understand how the gospel impacts various parts of your life, right? There's so much more to the gospel than just the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Jesus is sharing the gospel as he's sharing those parables about the kingdom of heaven, right? There's a lot about the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot to understand about it. Uh, that's more than just praying a prayer. And it's really important for us not to shrink the gospel down into a salvation prayer. Remember, there was no prayer of salvation for the first 1900 years of Christianity, right? <laughs> it is a new thing we invented. And there's so much more to Christianity. There's so much more to the book of Mark than just this prayer, which, by the way, isn't actually in the Bible. You know, you think about it. Um, yes, the whole issue of salvation, extremely important, right? But there's this whole massive attitude about how we're to live in everyday life. And that's what we can pull out with our stories. What do we do with this, with this Christianity? How do we live this out? How does uh, our faith make a difference? Uh, how does God change our hearts? And how does that change the story? A well-written story can make uh, that difference. You know, 
Thomas, I, I'm not a musician at all. I wish I could do music in some way. I can't. I'm just no good at it, right? But there's nothing like music to pull those emotions to make us feel. Well, actually, there is one thing, and that's writing. Good writing, <laughs> to me, is the closest thing to music because it can make you feel so much. It can pull out those emotions. And uh, and so I may not be able to be in a band, but, boy, I tell you what, I am going to um, – Make that book sing and, and make music that, that just resonates with, with people's soul. So what are some ways that we can make our books sing? Give, give us some hot <laughs> tips here for, for making our writing pop off the page. Well, I think, um, you know, we talked about plausibility a moment ago. Make sure that you've plugged any of those holes. And, and when you have something that comes across as unbelievable, uh, take a, a lesson out of the page of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, remember George Bailey. I mean, here, here's an angel visiting him. It's unreal. It's insane. And so sometimes we need to acknowledge that. You know, just like uh, George Bailey was like, you know, it's crazy. This doesn't happen. Um, same thing we do with one of our characters, our protagonist. If something crazy is going on, let him admit it. Hey, this is nuts. This stuff doesn't happen in real life. And to the reader, as long as somebody's questioning it, now they're okay. Now they'll go along with the ride. Yeah, I feel the same way, George. Um, and as they go along with George for the ride, as George begins to accept the bizarre truth, now the reader is taking the truth as well. And in the end, when the little bell rings on the tree and, you know, Clarence gets his wings or whatever, you know, uh, the the readers right there or the watcher is, is saying, yeah, oh, that a boy, Clarence. And so uh, plug up those kinds of holes and then write well. I, I guess I'm a big believer in really staying in your character's head. And making sure that uh, you're considering, you know, what is their personality? What is their perspective? Uh, you know, what predisposition are they in? What, what's going on in their mind just as they're going in this scene? We need to look at all those things. What are they smelling? What are they tasting? What are they hearing? Right? Get it, get it very visceral, very close to the action. Going back to what you said earlier about kind of pointing out the implausible things, you know, readers will suspend a certain amount of disbelief and different groups of readers will suspend different amounts of group of disbelief, right? A science fiction or fantasy reader, they're going to give you basically permission to create a whole new world. But once you've created that whole new world, you've got to obey your own rules, right? If wizards can't cast fire in the rain, and that's one of the rules that you make in your story in book one, you can't have the wizard casting fire in the rain in book two, right? Because then that belief they won't suspend. And what you're talking about, like pointing it out, that's actually a screenwriting technique called hanging a lantern on it. And you can get, if you hang a lantern on two or three things, you can break the rules and you get away with it. And a good example of this is Spider-Man in uh, Captain American Civil War saying to Captain America, your uh, shield doesn't obey the laws of ah. physics at all. <laughs> and th that's all the explanation that you get in that movie. And it's like, yeah, it, it doesn't obey the laws of physics. And Spider-Man pointed it out, and then it doesn't bother you anymore for the rest of the movies. Perfect. Yeah, that, that's, that's really, really good. So uh, what did you wish you had known when you first started writing? When you were grinding away at those terrible novels that have never seen the light of day, if you could go back and talk to yourself back then, uh, what would you say to your, your past self? Well, um, I, th I think the big thing was that writing is a skill. I thought writing was a gift. Uh, I thought it was something you had or you didn't. 
And um, so when I went to a writer's conference and had a critique done uh, of an early, uh, you know, an early novel, and it was just, you know, ripped to shreds, uh, I was leaving the conference, not because I was, you know, going to take my marbles and go home, but uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't have it. I was embarrassed and I thought, I don't have it. And I got to go back to work where I know what I'm doing, where I belong. And uh, I was like 10 feet from the crash bars, you know, to leave. I mean, I ditched a session and that's it. I'm going. Uh, And somebody stopped me. They started talking to me. And it was through that conversation that I really began to understand. No, this was this is something you can develop and polish and and you can really get better. I, I know that sounds so basic, Thomas, but. It's so important, though, because if you believe that it's a gift, you can't really receive criticism without feeling crushed, and you don't feel like you can get any better. But if it's a skill that you can hone, suddenly you're unlocked and you can get better. And I I had a kind of an epiphany about this uh, earlier this week, as a matter of fact. My daughter is, we are finding out, incredibly musical. She loves music. She will point at our Sonos and do the please sign language, and she wants to listen to the Donut Man. She would listen to the Donut Man all day long (laughs) if we let her. My poor wife is like, if I hear the Donut song one more time, so help me. Um, And what's interesting is as she's listening to more and more of the music, she's wanting to sing along, and we'll sing songs with her. And like She loves the doxology. We'll sing it together. And she tries to sing with us, and she's terrible, right? She doesn't know any words. She knows Dada and Mama, and she'll hum along with us, really trying to sing along with us. And she's off off key. And you know what? That's how every baby is at that age, right? No one is born good at singing. And I suspect, you know, she's got the genes for it and the, and the culture for it. She may be end up being quite a musical person, and she'll probably learn how to sing really well, especially if she gets some training. But you know what? She's, that's not going to be something that just happens, right? Like she was born bad at singing. She's born bad at talking. She now knows, I think, three or four letters, right? She can't write. And this is how we all are. And this myth of like, oh, so-and-so is born with this great gift. It's not true. Now, sure, some people are able to learn a skill faster than others, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible to learn the skill. And the harder it is for you to learn a skill, the easier it is for you to teach it. Because you um, are able, you have to kind of learn every step, every trick, and that actually opens up more opportunities. Because now, not only can you write books, but you can also teach writing because you understand all of the steps that goes into greatness. That is a good point, and that teaching turns around and helps us all the more because we try to find a way uh, to make it clear uh, to our audience because we were so mixed up on it uh, for so long, and when we finally get it, um, then we find a way uh, to teach that uh, to the people. You know what I think the greatest gift, if there's a gift of writing, I think the gift, at least in my life, it was the desire. That's the gift. <clears throat> the desire to write. That deep down desire that, that you just want it so bad. And um, because that keeps you hungry and that keeps you working on it. Uh, but it's a craft that you develop. But that desire to keep going. Uh, because it's a long process. Uh, there, there's the gift. And, and that's, that's what I thank God for is, uh, having that heart to write and, and to communicate that way. It's enjoying the process, it, it, which I, I think is a kind of another way of saying what you're just saying. You know, and think about somebody learning an instrument, right? If they are enjoying the act of playing the instrument badly, just for the sake of playing the instrument, that 
enjoyment is what's going to cause them to put in the practice to learn how to play the instrument well. Right? If they are just so excited to play the guitar that every time they get alone, they are practicing and trying to play the guitar and they're really awful, but they don't care because they enjoy playing the guitar and they're getting better and they're getting better. And every chance they get, they pull out their guitar and they're practicing and they're in college and they're pr- playing on the quad. That's the person who's going to end up being a good guitar player better than the person who's like, ah, I only want to be on stage, right? That person's going to end up getting the video game, <laughs> getting on stage and never making any music because they didn't enjoy the journey. And so often as writers, we get destination fever. We want to be a published author so badly that we fail to enjoy the writing of the story, the editing of the story, the pitching of the story, the promotion of the story. And if you can learn to enjoy each of those steps, you're going to be able to persist through that dip and into the greatness that comes after a whole lot of hard work. That's right. Uh, boy, there have been times, a couple of times I've actually been, you know, working on some aspect of a story. Uh, generally, it's been in a well, it's either a writing or an editing, which editing isn't always fun. Is it ever really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can be, right? The, I actually, no, that's, that's not fair. I really enjoyed editing my, my book and making it better. I enjoy that almost more than the writing of it. It's the, it's the making it stronger because now you're, you're taking it and you're really making it sing. So I do like that. And I've had a couple of times I've had phone somebody. I've been maybe like working out of a fast food place in an afternoon and just to call somebody and say, I am having so much fun. I just have to tell somebody this is just fun. And I think if you're having fun when you're writing or working on that book, whether it be writing, editing, whatever you're doing, if you're having fun, I think it's going to show and um, your readers are going to enjoy it uh, that much more. That's awesome. Where can we find out more about you? Well, you could go to, uh, you go to my uh, website, www.timshoemakersmashedtomatoes. One big long word. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Okay. So, uh, I don't keep it real up to date. I'm bad on that, Thomas. So there's a, there's a confession. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a great way that they can, they can get a hold of me. All right. And, um, before we go, give us one more, uh, piece of encouragement or one more tip uh, to help us become better writers. Well, um, I, I think one thing is, is, is really, plugging into the creativity of God. Uh, obviously, he's the most creative. And uh, so sometimes uh, I think it really helps us to remember that. Um, before I write, I, I'll often take a couple mile walk and just ask for thoughts and ideas. And, and I just work with what he gives me. Uh, Psalm 43.3 says, send forth your light and truth. Let them guide me. And boy, I want to I want to bring light and I want to bring truth with my writing, but it's really smart to be plugged into him and let him feed into us. And, you know, sometimes you just get these ideas that, you know, that, that just didn't come from me. I, it was too good. It was just, that was just perfect. That'll work. That just solved my problem I had with this scene uh, or whatever. And so I think really making sure we're plugged into him, um, I think is a really important thing. That is Great. And if you are wanting help to become a best or a better writer, I do encourage you to check out the Christian Writers Institute, who's our sponsor this week. It is a online 
training institute full of tons of classes to help you improve your writing, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's promotion, or even just getting a contract or putting together your proposal. We have courses on that because it does take work. It does take persistence, but there are ways of making it easier. And the easiest way to make it easier is to learn from the mistakes of others by taking courses and reading books. So you can find out more at christianwritersinstitute.com. And uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thomas, it was an honor. Love being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.